about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Uh, g'day everyone, my name is Ben. I'll be reading from Genesis in chapter 18, which is found on page 15 of the Pew Bibles. Genesis 18, starting at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Memre, while he was sitting at the entrance to, the tent, to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so that you may be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayers of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he rendered the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought, in, then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near, near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Hi, I'm Cam, so I'm reading from Revelations chapter 7, which is the other end of the Bible, uh, page 1220. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Ishaka, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe, tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. 
that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. There they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, good evening, folks. Um, as Roger said, we're beginning a, uh, a new series. Actually, I said that as well. We're pretty over hearing that. Um, and it is on Abraham, uh, who's a character from the book of Genesis. And we just read about him. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, once wrote, Abraham, I cannot understand. In a certain sense, there is nothing I can learn from him but astonishment. When the three studies we're about to set out upon, uh, one of which looks at the passage that Kierkegaard was thinking about when he wrote that, our aim is to learn from Abraham and to learn perhaps something more than astonishment, though astonishment is, I think, worth a great deal more than we might think. But our hope is to learn from Abraham something of what it means to have and to live by faith. Abraham towers over the Bible as the first, though not the greatest, man of faith. He is the one who, the scriptures say, believed God. And to be a Christian is, as the Apostle Paul pointed out at great length, to be a Christian is to be someone who is of the faith of Abraham, who shares Abraham's faith in a way. Yet the fascinating thing is that when we get into the details of Abraham's life, we see that his faith was not so different from ours. It was a struggle. Messy, difficult, at times impatient, at times bold, but always genuinely and recognizably human. And that's why we can learn from him and from his experience. That's why we can learn about what living by faith is actually like. Our three talks come from Genesis chapters 18, 19, and 22. Uh, There's much more to Abraham's story in the Bible than just these events. Uh, They cover, in fact, only a few days in Abraham's life. In fact, the first two talks from Genesis 18 and 19 cover a single 24-hour period. Uh, Yet I've chosen these few small events because I think they take us into very deep things about faith. Deep, but also difficult. These chapters involve, particularly not this week, but the other two, some truly horrifying moments. These studies will be in some ways demanding. Yet, don't not come back, come back, uh, because that's actually as it should be, isn't it? For as we will see, and as Abraham reminds us, the life of faith is no shallow thing. It's no easy thing to engage with, to relate to, to be intimate with the living God, well, that that is a fearful and wonderful thing. I think Abraham can remind us 
of what a terror and privilege faith is. Uh, The proof of the pudding is in the eating, however, so uh, no more throat clearing from me. Can I invite you to um, uh, pray with me as we begin? Father, we do ask you to bless this time looking at your word from Genesis. We ask that as we look at Abraham, we would see something of ourselves and a great deal of you, that we would put our faith in your son Jesus more and more deeply. Amen. Um, near the end of the book of Hebrews, we didn't read it, but near the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer says something really odd. He says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Uh, now, that's, a, that's an intriguing thought. I, don't you think? I think it is. Um, I wonder if you have any moments where you think this has happened. If you do, I'd, I'd love to hear about them. Tell me, please. Um, a little while ago, last year, I arrived at church in the evening, uh, in the afternoon, to get things organised before the service, and the band, as usual, were practising. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, Brendan, our drummer at the time, many of you may remember Brendan, lovely, lovely bloke, Brendan was playing in a more restrained way than normal. Uh, it's not actually an uncommon experience in churches to have a Uh, talented but too loud drummer, a common affliction. Um, But Alana, our music leader, told me that uh, he was playing more quietly because an elderly man had wandered in during the rehearsal uh, and sat in the pews just here and listened. And uh, when the band paused after a little while, he declared, I can't hear anything except the drums. Now, by the time I got there, this guy was nowhere to be found and nobody knew who he was. And I would not be surprised if he were actually an angel. (laughs) A messenger sent in God's service. It was probably the story before us uh, this evening in Genesis chapter 18, however, that inspired the writer of Hebrews with that thought. Have a look at Genesis chapter 18. It's on page 15, I think. 15? Um, Because in this story, Abraham and Sarah welcome a party of strangers... Uh, with hospitality, a party who turn out to be far more than just passing travellers. Abraham is sitting at the entrance of his tents, verse 1, in the heat of the day, and looking up, he sees three men. Now, we know from verse 1 that this is, in fact, God, the Lord himself, somehow present through his angel. But it seems to have been a shock to Abraham. Just, he's just surprised to see these three guys. And he springs into action in accordance with the best traditions of ancient Near Eastern hospitality. Verse 2. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Hospitality and failure to offer hospitality are actually going to be quite important in our stories as we go through. Here at the beginning, we see Abraham excel in generosity. Uh, He greets his guests with extravagant politeness. Have a look at it there. Verse 3, he said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord. It is actually interesting that he uses the singular here. Um, He was obviously addressing the leader of the group as, as Lord, yet we understand that he is more right than he knows. We'll come back to that though. If I've found favour in your sight, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. 
Abraham's actually laying it on thick here. Uh, That last phrase is more literally, since this is why you've come for your servant's sake. Um, It's as if he's saying, you'd be doing me a huge favor if if you stayed for tea. Please give me the honor. Um, But he's clever as well, uh, isn't he? He offers them just enough to get them to stay. Uh, Something to eat is, is literally a piece of bread, just a piece, a piece of bread, just a bite, five minutes. Five minutes, no more, even though he actually plans to detain them long enough to slaughter and roast a whole cow. You may know hospitality like this. Uh, Perhaps you've spent time in other cultures, perhaps it's just you, you know, I'll make you an offer of tea and cake you can't refuse, kind of thing. But Abraham's deferential pleading, it works uh, very well, they say. And then in verse 6, he springs into action. Uh, Did you notice the pace of the action? Uh, There, verse 6, everything suddenly is hurry, hurry, hurry. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk. That's uh, basically like a yogurt dip uh, that you have with Lebanese food. Actually, this meal, you can basically have it at Sultan's table uh, up the road. Uh, it's good gear, there's no problem with that. And, and the calf that has been prepared and he set them before them, this is extremely extravagant hospitality. It's not like your average Australian visit, right, where you know, if people come over, we might begrudgingly offer them some land chew, uh, tea, you know, leave the twinings hidden, thank you very much, uh, and a few shredded wheat meal. Uh, actually, that's gourmet for me, but anyway. Um, Abraham's command to Sarah... Right? It's extravagant. Bake some bread is kind of an understatement. Uh, three CRs of flour, it's probably over 20 litres. Uh, that's a lot of bread. Uh, you know, Sarah must have had some serious upper arms. The calf is literally a bull. You know? I mean, just think about that. It's, it's more than you need, right, for three steaks and some kebabs. Abraham puts on a feast. And he waits on them, and while they ate, it says he stood near them under a tree. This is hospitality from a culture that cared deeply about hospitality. And although it's not what this talk is is, is about, not what we're going to focus on tonight, it is a beautiful reminder, I think, of how you can show someone by the manner of your welcome that you regard them as valuable. Do we do that? Do we do that? I hope we do. I think we do okay, but we could do better, couldn't we? Could, could you do better? Could we do better as a church at showing people that they matter a lot by the way we welcome them? Anyway, back to the story. Uh, Abraham has shown hospitality fit for a king without knowing that that is exactly who he is with. But now as the meal ends, the identity of these strangers starts to bubble out to the surface. In verse 9, they ask, where is your wife, Sarah? Now, that question seems simple, but it's actually a question more for Abraham than for them. They know that Sarah is there, actually. She made the bread. They know that. What's important here is that they use her name, Sarah. Somehow, they know Abraham's wife's name. And what's more, this is a name she has only recently been given. It's only in the previous chapter that God changes her name from Sarai to Sarah. Uh, There is more to these strangers than Abraham first thought. Abraham answers that she is in the tent. 
Now, it would have been customary for her as a married woman to stay removed. And now one of them, uh, it's singular voice now, one of them begins to speak to her through Abraham. Verse 10. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This promise of a son is not new. Uh, it has, if you know the story, you'll know it's been the defining reality of Abraham and Sarah's life for the best part of three decades. And just in the previous chapter, if you read back, we see this promise confirmed to Abraham, along with the name this son is going to have, Isaac. What is new here, though, is the time frame. Next year, it's going to happen. Suddenly, the stakes have gone up. What's also new in this passage is the focus on Sarah, and it's her reaction that is the, that we're going to focus on in the rest of the passage. Have a look at the second half of verse 10. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master... Uh, in the Hebrew, master is literally Lord, and it's, it's just a respectful way of referring to Abraham, her husband. After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? I want us to make sure we understand Sarah's reaction here deeply. When the narrator reminds us of Abraham and Sarah's age in verse 11, he's reminding us that this promise was, humanly speaking, impossible. Past the age of childbearing means postmenopausal. These were old people for whom conception was now no longer possible. Sarah's response shows how deeply this impossibility was felt. She laughs to herself and thinks, am I really going to have a child? No way. The way she puts it though, helps us remember what we so easily forget, that for her, this was a promise that was intimate. When she speaks of herself being worn out, and of her husband as old, and of not having pleasure, she is plainly speaking of the realities of sex. Sexual intimacy itself, it seems, has become a distant memory. So that the prospect of having children is simply a joke, Children, we can't even have sex anymore. Now, lest we forget where this has come from, let me remind you of Sarah and Abraham's story to this point. Uh, if you know it, great. If you don't, here it is. We first meet them back in Genesis chapter 12, and everything is literally full of promise. Um, God comes to them and promises these things, and they set out for a new land in obedience to God and with his promise in their minds. His promise that they will become a great nation and that they will have descendants and grow into a people, a nation who will bring blessing to the whole world. And the early years after that are full of triumphs. They make mistakes, yes, but they overcome difficulties and God proves faithful and there are growing hints as they go that God's promise is indeed unfolding and yet all the while, there is this nagging problem. Abraham gives voice to it in Genesis chapter 15. He says, O sovereign Lord, 
What can you give me since I remain childless? And the heir of my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, that is some distant relative because he hadn't had a son. But Abraham is reassured he will have a child, he will have a son, a son from his own body and God confirms his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, he reassures him and yet still the years go by and no baby. In chapter 16, verse 1, we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And then it dawns on Sarah. It dawns on her. Perhaps she is the problem. Perhaps she is the problem. Perhaps she is what is holding this promise back. And so she does something that must have been terrifying and humiliating. She offers her husband, Abraham, her slave girl, Hagar, as a concubine. And to her shame, Hagar conceives. Sarah was the problem, after all. And to add insult to injury, Hagar turns on her and ridicules her. We can imagine what this must have been like in a culture that, like that, which, which so much was vested in a woman's childbearing. Sarah has been utterly humiliated. Her Her response to all of this is not especially good, but she is angry, you see. She's angry, angry with her husband, angry with Hagar, angry with God. And yet, Ishmael, Hagar's son, is not the answer. When Abraham is 99, God appears to him and tells him in chapter 17 that he is still going to have a son and... This son will come from Sarah. We need to understand the shock this must have been. Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. So Ishmael is now 13 years old. And it is not until this point that Abraham is told that the son will come from Sarah. Abraham himself, when he is told, he can't understand it. In chapter 17, it says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And then he says what he really thinks. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. We forget, you see, that after 13 years, Abraham must have just started to assume that Ishmael was the child of the promise. Perhaps not how he'd figured it would be, work out, but a child nevertheless. But now, only now, God says that it's not Ishmael, that the child is still to come. He and Sarah had had years and years and decades of disappointment. Were they to go back to all of that now, when they were so much older? We can imagine, I I think, that after what must have been many years of bitterness since Abraham embraced Hagar, his relationship with Sarah could well have been complex. Who knows what a prospect this was, what pain and awkwardness and embarrassment it must have meant. Had they made love in a decade? That's why Sarah laughs. Because the human reality of the situation, you see, seems to ridicule the promise of God. To turn it into a joke. 
It's not that Sarah doesn't believe in a simple sense. It's that the realities of the world and of life had made this promise seem totally impossible and unreal. Her laugh is not a laugh of anger or of bitterness, but of tiredness, of one who has just kind of given up and for whom God's promise can no longer be meaningful or serious. It's a thought from a life that is long gone, a dream she has long since said goodbye to. Her intention is not disrespect. That's why she laughs to herself. And yet she does laugh. It's a sad laugh, a laugh of someone who has kind of given up believing. Friends, have you felt like this about the promise of God? about God's promises to you, about his promises for the church, for mission, for your life? Have you ever felt just crushed by the human reality of things? So that God's promise ceases to function as something real, but becomes just a kind of quaint imaginary. It's not that you want to disbelieve or that you want to be faithless, it's that you just can't see it anymore. You know, I think this is very much possible for us. Because we too have been called to live by faith in promises. Promises that can easily seem impossible. This is the essence of faith, the Bible tells us, that it looks to things unseen. We don't live by sight And what we look toward in faith can very easily seem impossible. That God will raise the dead and overcome our sins and our weakness and our mortality. That after almost 2,000 years, Jesus will actually return and bring his kingdom. That all things really will work together for good for those who love God. Perhaps nowhere is the apparent impossibility of God's promises more pressing than in relation to, I think, world mission. I'm sure that many of us here have been gripped by the visions like we read from the book of Revelation of the great multitude of people from every nation and tribe and language and people standing before the throne of God. All Christian churches and mission and service lives by this promise, this promise that God will win the nations. And yet, humanly speaking, this can look dreadfully far away as we become aware of the untold millions far from the gospel and perishing daily and as we're confronted by the tininess of Christian ministry and mission work in comparison even more so when this work suffers setbacks or terrible failure or, is, is, or even worse, is undone by moral and pastoral disaster. The weight of it can start to press upon us. Sometimes we can get around these kinds of things by kind of reducing our expectations, reducing our hopes. Perhaps what we're promised is not really that big. But I think this is a mistake. There's something wrong about that because the Bible very much leads us to hope that when Jesus returns, 
and God's kingdom does come, it, it won't be like a mild disappointment. It will be wonderful and glorious. I wonder if you have struggled with this as I have. I see in the Bible a promise that Christ's kingdom will mean the fulfillment of the hope of creation and that it will be wonderful and beautiful and perfect. And yet when I look at the world and see the millions who seem to be perishing and the terrible suffering experienced by so many people, and when I'm confronted by the smallness and slowness and shabbiness of my own work, and the small success of work that I know of, sometimes it seems just impossible that it will all turn out to be anything other than a great tragedy. It seems unthinkable how any future hope could overcome this loss. I know that part of my problem is my own perspective, my wanting things that are not in fact promised to me, But it's not a mistake to hear in the Bible the promise that God's kingdom will be wonderful. And yet the human reality of the world we find ourselves in seems every day to make that impossible. Whether it's in relation to mission and ministry or simply your personal faith and walk with God, the human reality of things can make God's promise seem like a quaint joke like it did with Sarah. I wonder if you can relate to her creeping secret scepticism here. Sarah's reaction is understandable. Yet it is not right. It is not good. It may be understandable unbelief, yet unbelief it still is. Because what she has forgotten is that the one who makes these promises to her is God. Verse 13, have a look at it there. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, Yes, you did laugh. God's rebuke of Sarah here is firm, isn't it? But it's also very gentle. Even when Sarah, out of fear, understandable fear, right, given that she'd laughed to herself in the tent, understandable fear, even when she denies the accusation, and and she may have felt that she didn't really laugh, actually, because she didn't laugh out loud. Even when she denies it, God simply points out to her that she did. He confronts her with her unbelief. He refuses to let her avoid it. Yes, he did laugh. But he also reminds her of why her skepticism is wrong. Why is it wrong? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word for hard there is a terrific Hebrew word that is usually translated wonderful or marvelous. It catches the sense that with God, you see, there are possibilities beyond the mundane. Sarah has forgotten, you see, that the human reality of the situation is not finally decisive. Because it is the Lord who makes this promise and he does wonders. He is the creator. His promise is a more solid ground 
of trust and action than any apparently immovable facts of the situation. His word is a better basis for action than even the most obvious and seemingly unchangeable set of human circumstances. Is anything too wonderful for him? Is anything too wonderful for him? Is anything too wonderful for him? Is it? No. And we need to confess that we know that far better than Sarah and Abraham ever could have done. She had seen God's faithfulness in remarkable ways, certainly, but we have seen him raise his son from the dead. We have been given a demonstration more powerful than anything Abraham and Sarah experienced, that the human reality of the situation, what seemed to be the simple, unarguable facts, dead body, buried, they do not have the final word because nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. So let's ask ourselves, in what ways do we need to have our secret skepticism confronted? In what ways have you forgotten who it is who makes promises to us? In what ways have you been mesmerized by the human facts of the situation and forgotten that the one whose promise we have heard is the God who raises the dead? Brothers and sisters, are there, are there points at which you need this gentle rebuke from God? At which you need to be gently confronted with your unbelief? Are there points at which you have started to feel like maybe the cost of following Jesus is not worth it? Maybe the sacrifices required are too great. Maybe you should find a way to hedge your bets just in case it turns out that God's promise was a bit far-fetched after all. Is there, un underneath the veneer of your Christian life and service, a creeping secret skepticism? Brothers and sisters, our God is the God who raises the dead. We ought not to laugh, however impossible his promise may seem. Is anything too wonderful for him? Now, we don't know everything about what happened to Abraham and Sarah after this point. But we know that they must have acted in faith. However, to use a silly euphemism, however awkward and embarrassing and challenging in their marriage that must have been. In conclusion, just turn over the page to Genesis chapter 21. From verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah 
would nurse children. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The name Isaac means he laughs. And it was given to Abraham and Sarah as an ironic reminder of their own earlier laughter. But now that sceptical laughter has turned to laughter of surprise and astonished joy and thankfulness and praise. The joke, God seems to say, is on them. God has been gentle and faithful with them and has done what he promised despite it being impossible. Let this be an encouragement to us too, friends, to press on in faith in the God for whom human impossibilities are no obstacle and who will one day make us too laugh with astonished joy and thankfulness at all that he has done to fulfill his promise. Living the Christian life, being a part of the mission of the gospel is a work of faith, of pressing on in the face of apparent impossibility because we trust the word, the promise of God who raises the dead. Let's keep at it because we will not be disappointed. And in that spirit, can I invite you now to stand and sing? Band will come up. We're going to sing a great hymn uh, who was writ- which was written by a man much devoted to world mission. And it's a great hymn that's- that speaks deeply to this theme and expresses a trust in God despite all the things that seem to make it impossible. Please stand. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.